Today on the Hay Kings podcast, I'm joined again by Dennis Swinger. Dennis has told us a little bit about managing through crisis periods. Dennis is an irrigated and dry land farmer in central Washington state, growing a variety of crops, and he's going to educate us a little bit on those crops today and some of the thought processes that go into managing a fairly large farming operation. Welcome, Dennis. Great to be with you again, John. I want to hear about your farming operation. Well, we are located south of Interstate 90, just about four miles due south of the Schrag Rest Area. And that puts us in Adams County on the far western edge. And we are just within spitting distance of the Columbia Basin Project. And we are what's called in the second half of the project. In lieu of finishing the project when the first half was water, we were issued uh, well permits. So we had been irrigating uh, since the 30s out of a pond down in the coulee by the freeway. And so my grandfather decided to start drilling wells. And we started irrigating with hand lines and wheel lines out of deep wells. And what that did was move us from a traditional uh, summer fallow weed operation into into more high value intensive of crops. Uh, we were doing corn and uh, soybeans back in the 60s, even before before we even had the, the knowledge of what to do with it. We were planting soybeans and growing them and started potatoes out here in the, in the mid 60s as they expanded your acres out of the basin looking for more separation and more rotation ability to have those potatoes they found that even early on that that rotation and separation made a yield increase so what that's done for us we have evolved into where we farm with center pivots and deep wells the high value intensive farming at current time we have quite a few acres of kentucky bluegrass seed hybrid canola seed that we grow for basf and we rent ground out to potato growers from the basin as part of their rotation. We've grown everything from garbanzos to rapeseed to plantago, which was what they make Metamucil out of. We've tried just about everything. And if there's enough money in it, we'll give it a shot. That sounds like quite a diversity. And, and in fact, I don't know that I've ever heard somebody from Washington say they grew soybeans. Yeah, there was a uh, oh, late 70s. There was a man in the Walla Walla area that was shipping to Japan and had a pretty good business there for a couple of years. Was his name B. Bunny, Walla Walla, Washington? <laughs> yeah, there you go. Yeah, <laughs> just that left turn at Cucamonga. Yeah, you got it. But he missed the <laughs> no. Coachella Carrot Festival. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> I've been involved in the Pacific Northwest Canola Association and, and spoken several times before that as to canola. And why do we raise canola and... One of the, the big factors is for us, anytime we look at a new crop, how much new iron do we have to buy? We look for crops that we can either can grow and harvest with our existing equipment, or we can partner with somebody that has whatever specialized equipment we need. And the other factor of that is, well, there's usually three big factors, one of them being the water requirement and the timing for the water and the timing for our workforce. And the other one is, do we have some agronomy help with that? We hate being out there on our own. It's nice to have somebody to hold your hand and whisper in your ear, even if they're just telling you, hey, you're doing the right thing. Having that extra set of eyes that knows a, a new crop is, is crucial for us. 
And we very diligently, if we're going to do something specialty crop-wise, that it's on a contract basis. Then that's where it's led us down the road, harvest with uh, Case IH 2388s. So a variation of concaves, grates, and sieves can get you most of the, the crops around. And you might have to have a different header, but the parts and pieces are so interchangeable and so adaptable to a diversity of crops that's what's led us kept us in that direction one of the things i talked about the timing for water and for workforce because we're deep well uh, we are in what's called the odessa subaquifer and it is a very very rapidly diminishing uh, aquifer how deep are those wells that you're talking about you're a thousand feet or so yeah uh, those permits were pumping basically half to two-thirds of what we're permitted for just because the volume isn't there. So we started out talking about the Columbia Basin Project. That's central Washington state. We've heard about this a little bit on the Hay Kings podcast already. Now this goes back to the 30s with the CCC and federal reclamation and and, uh, Grand Coulee Dam. 671,000 acres currently and expanding another 60 to 90,000 acres. And what you're saying is you're part of that. We are part of that. We are supposedly, we are the first part of that expansion, not expansion, I call it completion of the second half. Uh, my great-grandfather signed up for water originally in the second half of the project. It was, as the first half was laid out, a gravity-fed project. And the second canal went just, was slated to go just east of our place. The first half being completed in about that time, we ran into funding issues with the Vietnam War, as it, and this is how, how things have been explained to me. I am by no means an expert in this. These are just my recollections and the things that I know and understand. There's a gentleman out of Moses Lake, Mick Qualls, and he has got a fantastic history presentation of this. Mick has several plans that were proposed how to irrigate this early, early on, like turn of the last century, like bringing water down from Lake Ponderay using some of the existing channels from the Great Floods. Well, now you're talking about my neck of the woods. Exactly. <laughs> That's a long way. It is a tremendous long way. And the, the fact that they had the engineering chutzpah to do that then, it just, you look at it and go, okay, you guys are your studs. This is impressive. But there were there were plans and recognition of this being a incredibly fertile area if you could add water. Backing up to where you were talking about with this completion, we are what's called the uh, the 47.5 project. 47.5 meaning how many miles away we are from, from the dam on the canal. That's 47 and a half miles from Grand Coulee headed south, right? Correct. And what that gets you is... We are just south of I-90, and there's a where they're going to take the water out of the canal. There's a, a part of the canal that just crosses the line into Adams County. They're building a pumping plant, and they're going to have big pipe coming all the way across from the canal and terminating at the western edge of our farm. Because of the way our farm was laid out, we had all of our five deep wells networked together so we had push water and valving we could make things happen wherever we needed to go we've had to construct a new pumping plant over on the very far edge and then reconstruct our infrastructure to bring that extra water in and we are not 
of building because the, the farmers, the producers actually bear the cost of what's going on for construction. We're signing a 30-year contract to repay that construction cost. Now what you're talking about is on to a half a billion dollars. That's B with a billion with a B. Well, we are paying for our acres. The construction and it it's normalized across as things come online. Hopefully that cost will go down. But, you know, we sat down at the table when we signed these things and I'm over 50. My dad is over 75 and you're sitting there and you're signing contracts for your kids and you're you're really betting on the come. So because of that, we didn't include all of our irrigated acres. We are still maintaining some of our pumps and hopefully we can recapture enough income from these acres because our water quality, not only is it are diminishing, but the quality of the water has diminished too. I mean, it's... What are those quality metrics that you're talking about? uh, Mineral content. Um, We're having to add acid because we're we're getting our pHs in our soils up so high from what's going on. We're pumping some high pH water. Ah, okay. And there's getting to be, sometimes you'll get sulfur pockets as well. So you're buffering the water that's coming out and, you know, you're adding salts in. That doesn't typically go well for farm ground. No. <laughs> no, in fact, <laughs> no, you, you add too much and, and you don't have much for farm ground for a long time. No, and you're employing the ancient Roman technique of salting the earth as you go. So Yeah, no kidding. Uh, we we're trying to avoid that. So that's where the resurgence in, there, there's always been a group, uh, the Col- Columbia Development League has been around since the 70s, to keep this issue in the forefront. And in my mind, the perfect storm of the Odessa subaquifer studies showing the true diminishing of our water supply and the economic impact on the area, plus some George W. Bush um, policies that opened up more river water to be allocated towards irrigation, made this really something we could pursue a lot harder. One of the things that people don't understand, there's a couple of misconceptions. The fact that, A, we're getting this for free. I said, no, I've signed a pretty healthy contract that it's going to cost me a lot of money. And B, we're not taking brand new ground and irrigating it. We are merely replacing the water that we've already, I mean, our infrastructure is older than some of the stuff in the basin. The basin project was originally laid out as a gravity flow system with real irrigation where you've got siphon tubes that come out of a ditch and then in very small plots because you have to follow the topography of the ground to maintain that positive flow. We started center pivots in, uh, I think, 72. 1972 is the first ones that we had. So because of what we have to do and the efficiencies that we require, We've been on the leading edge of a lot of, and I'm not blowing my own horn, it's been by necessity to be on the leading edge of of the irrigation technology just so you don't waste water. And a lot of the basin, I mean, there's people still out there with siphon tubes, not many, but... I want to drive this concept home a little bit. Without irrigation, what would you be growing? Wheat. Every year? Every other year. Um, we are in a, we're on a rotation where... We are in a natural moisture area of between six to eight inches of rainfall a year. And that's total moisture, rain, whatever. 
rain, snow, everything. Total moisture. So to that end, we get a crop every other year. We do what's called summer fallow. Traditional summer fallow was with iron. You went out there and you tilled it a couple times and you would have to go through and weed and then you would seed in the fall and take a crop off that the following year. And that ground would be in fallow a year after. So you would split your farm in two or three pieces. So you had some income every year. You didn't go one with and one without. We would be traditionally in a wheat or a barley. And I don't know if we could get by with some canola now. The WSU metric that still seems to be the gold standard is you take the first four inches to make the straw, first four inches of water to make the straw and the first seven bushels of grain. And every inch after that gives you another seven bushels. So we don't have a really tremendously high proven average on our winter wheat. You're talking about really low winter wheat yields. Correct. 20, 30 bushel is inside it. Our proven, I think, is 32 to 35, depending on the piece of ground. There you go. And that's every other year. And that's every other year on a piece of ground. There's going to be some folks listening to this that are just flabbergasted that you're taking 30 bushels off every other year. Not every year, every other year. And fastidiously maintaining the crop residue because with that low amount of crop, your straw is correspondingly small or not. It's just that you don't have a tremendous amount of cover and you've got to maintain that for an entire year. We are in a very unique position with our wind events. We have quite a bit of southwest blowing wind. We are in what's called the Shano series of the Silt Loam. Not quite the wind blown less of the Palouse, but quite a bit of it. And it'll move. I mean, I try to explain to people, basically, we're farming volcanic ash with organic matter in it. Now, you say volcanic ash. Most folks have heard of Mount St. Helens. How much ash did you get when that blew? Uh, between four and six inches. So you're literally farming volcanic ash. Yeah. If you dig a soil pit, you'll find, you you can find the layers over the years from Mount Mazama, from Krakatoa, from other places. They're, they are down there and the soil scientists can do electron microscope, study the ash layers and know where they came from. And we're getting some of the, you know, because our ground was scoured from the Lake Missoula floods corresponding soil was blown back, not quite like the Palouse, but that's where we got some of it was from the wind blown back, but also from ash events. That's pretty amazing. If you're not into geology as a farmer, how can you be into your soil? And you absolutely must be paying attention to your soil if you're a farmer. Absolutely. Back to the rotation and why this ground is important to be to maintain the irrigation. The potato processors in the area, once they realize that over 25% of the potatoes that are processed in the Columbia Basin are grown outside of the project, they realize they needed to be on board with this because if they had to move those acres back into where the into the basin, their quality would probably diminish enough to where they would leave. That's a problem. It really is. Considering all of the big potato processors in the world have operations in Washington State. Exactly, and they're positioned because of the Pacific Rim. And I didn't realize this till probably 10, 12 years ago, but the big issue is you've got the Midwest and the East Coast potatoes because of the high humidities and 
whatever they've got for soil load of of contaminants the quality is a big issue and then shipping something that's that much water weight across the country all of a sudden your shipping costs go bananas i had it explained to me that a french fry is just a container of water well exactly and a potato is even a bigger container of water so what you're talking about is international markets though we're shipping french fries all over the world japan for example buys a lot of northwest uh, french fries Oh, exactly. Uh, we are over 40% of ag produce is exported. That's a big number. It's a tremendously big number. Dennis, I've really enjoyed this conversation. It's always a pleasure to get together and talk with you and, and learn what you're thinking about and the way you're viewing the world and your farming operation. Just a great time. Well, it's been my pleasure, John. It's always a treat to, to chat with you.